Good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Hope and pray that you have managed to stay healthy. Uh, it seems like there's a ton of sickness that's gone around. I'm, I was sick a good portion of this week early on with a headache that lasted, it seemed like, a week, which was great, and I'm, I'm thankful to be healthy. If you haven't yet, let me invite you to grab uh, your copy of God's Word and open to the passage that was just read aloud to us. Judges chapter 10. We'll be covering Judges 10 in its entirety this morning. Last week, we covered Judges 9, the story of Abimelech. Will covered all 57 verses of the story, uh, which was dark, it was violent. There was mass murder, there was assassination, there was uh, just not a good story. But Will, thank you for your message and the warning of, reality, of God's justice, the reality of his wrath and hatred against sin, the warning that this story offers us uh, of what happens when we fail to obey God's word and listen to uh, what his word tells us to do. At the end of Judges 8 and into Judges 9, the people of, of Israel, they abandoned God, and Judges 9 recorded what happens when they follow this self-appointed king named Abimelech. Abimelech is a man who's not chosen by God, he's chosen by himself, and he's a self-made king, and he kills 69 of his brothers on one stone, he sacrifices all of them, he murders a whole town, and again, Abimelech was not motivated or led by God's spirit, he was led by himself, he was self-chosen, self-appointed, and at the end of Judges 9, God returns all of the evil that Abimelech had done upon his head. That's what it says in Judges 9, 56. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech. And then in verse 7, it said, God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And this shows, as Will said last week, God's justice, that evil will be paid, that things will not go unpunished. And the story gets worse and worse. It's a downward spiral. Then we enter into Judges 10, and it says, after that, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo. And the people of God seemingly, they don't even, and I know it's kind of an unfortunate fortunate name, uh, <laughs> Dodo. Uh, the people of God seemingly don't even cry out for a savior, right? We think, we think about him, we, we see the recap of what had God had done in Judges 9, how although all the evil that God had, that God punished for Abimelech doing, all the evil was returned back on his head, justice was enacted, the people don't crowd, and, and yet God raises up judges. It, judges 10, 1 through 5 is interesting to me because the people don't even cry out, and there's two judges that rise up to save Israel. The one guy named Tola, the other guy named Jair, and there's not much, much that's listed about these judges. You see, uh, for Tola, there's only two verses that are given to him. And for Jair, there's only three verses that are given to him. There's not much detail that's shared about their life or what they do. And I think this shows us that this is an example of God's grace. That the people are not even crying out for a Savior, and God is saving them. And that's, I think, the emphasis, the point here, why there's not a lot listed. There, there is some sort of peculiar uh, repetition of the word 30, as you see in verse 4, that Jair is described, he judges Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities. There's, there's a significance with a guy who comes after the next judge. We look at Jephthah with 30. But that would just mean that he's a man of power and prominence. 
Uh, he has many donkeys, he has many sons, he has many towns. Uh, but that's really all that we're told about these two judges. So we think about this reality of God's grace that he has given the Israelites. They're not even crying out. God raises up two judges to save them. And yet the people still haven't learned their lesson. They still return to their ways of worshiping other gods. They forget the Lord. This is what verse 6 tells us. This is a similar phrase that we've seen all throughout the book of Judges. We've seen this phrase in, in Judges 8.34 and 6.1 and 4.1 and 3.12 and 3.7. The people of Israel, and hopefully we can be able to finish the refrain by now if you've been with us through this study, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, this is different than what we've described before because in previous accounts, the only two gods that are listed as the people serve are the Baals and the Asheroth. And now there are seven gods that are listed worship to worship here. If you know a little about biblical history or biblical literature, you know that that seven was a symbolic number. Seven was a number to mean completeness. So it's almost symbolizing the complete uh, ruin of idolatry that the people had, had fallen into. They had not only worshipped these gods that they had worshipped before, but now notice they're, they're worshipping the gods that had previously oppressed them, which seems illogical to me, right? So they're oppressed by Moab. God raises up this guy named Gideon to free them from the Moabites, and now they think, now that we've been rescued from Moab, let's worship their gods. Right? It seems foolish. They now worship the gods of the Philistines and the gods of the Ammonites, who are two people that are about to oppress the people. So the people of Israel are worshiping the gods that previously oppressed them. This longer list than usual, as we've seen in the book of Judges, shows this downward spiral that we've talked about through the book of Judges as the people have gotten worse and worse. They are forgetting the Lord. They are worshiping other gods. It seems like now they're, they're going to a, a buffet style of idolatry. I want a little of this God and this God, and let me just make sure my plate, my palate is well-rounded of idolatry. And we see again that there are consequences for rebellion and for leaving God. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. It's ironic that I'm talking about Gilead this morning. Anyways. <laughs> This verse clearly shows us there's consequences for rebellion. And although the people of God are described as a treasured possession, they were his, he sells them. He sells them into the hands of people who oppressed them and crushed them. This is an aspect of God's wrath, God's justice, that the anger that's described here of God giving the people over to their desires. God giving the people over to things that will ultimately lead to their harm and destruction, but he's, he's removing his restraint on their evil. He's giving them what they want. This is an aspect of his wrath, and they're oppressed and crushed by these people. It, verse 9 describes that the, Israel was severely 
distress. This means to be overcome with affliction, to be marked by anxious uneasiness or trouble or grief. This is the condition of the people of Israel. And now, finally from this state, they cry out to God. Verse 10 is another similar phrase that we've seen all throughout the book of Judges. The people of Israel cry out to God in verse 10 saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now, everywhere else the people of God have cried out to him, God has raised up a judge. God has raised up a deliverer. The people cry out to God in Judges 3.9. God raises up Othniel. The people of God cry out to him in Judges 3.15. God raises up Ehud. But similar to the last time which we see the people of God cry out to him in Judges 6, God doesn't immediately bring up a judge or a deliverer. In Judges 6, before bringing a deliverer, God sent a sermon. He sent a prophet. And God said in Judges 6, verse 8, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hand of all of those who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So there's something that's new that's added to the usual cycle that we see in Judges. And God sends a sermon. And God was reminding the people in Judges 6 why they were in the condition that they were in. Because you have not obeyed my voice. He wanted them to know before rescuing them the peril that they were in and what got them there. Their idolatry, not listening to God. So similar to that time in Judges 6 and Judges 10, there's something different that we see in the normal cycle. The narrator wants us to look at something. Something different happens in Judges 10. And maybe you caught it as, as our friend Aaron read it. God says directly to the people this time in verse 11. And the, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Moanites, who oppressed you and, and you cried out to me and I saved you from their hand. Right? This is similar to what he says in Judges 6, right? It's a similar concept and idea that he's getting at. But notice verse 13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. We haven't seen that before. Now, if you can put yourself in the shoes of the original audience who would be reading this or hearing these stories about judges, they would pick up the familiar cycle that we see throughout judges where the people of God sin, they're oppressed, they cry out to him, and they, God brings a deliverer. And I think it would be safe for us to assume that as we read through this, just like maybe we assumed ourselves, as we read through this story, and we see the people of God, they realize they've sinned, they cry out to the Lord, that God would raise up a judge and save them. And yet, what do we do with verse 13 at the very end, especially, where God says, I will save you no more? That should cause us, that I think is intended to cause some sort of shock. It should cause us to pause and take a look at what is God trying to show us here? What is this getting at? This should cause us to pause, and the addition of this new thing in the cycle is God introducing a new theme, God showing us something new that he hasn't shown us before, which is the need for true confession and repentance. When you turn to verse 14, God says, Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. God gets a little sarcastic. 
And you remember as we studied through the book of Mark and we've gone through other Old Testament letters, when God gets sarcastic, it's usually not a good thing. God uses an irony to speak to the people. He uses a similar irony uh, when he speaks to them as recorded in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2.28, God says this, Where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. See what God is doing here. It would be like you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, a spouse who cheats on you repeatedly with multiple people. They've forsaken the, the marriage vows that you made or the, the covenant, the commitment that you made to one another. The spouse wants nothing more to do with you. They're just giving themselves to, to bad people, to bad things, to, uh, to affairs and to cheating. And th- these people mislead you and, and lead your spouse astray. You hit financial trouble, things are not going well in your life. And then the person comes back to the spouse and says, hey, uh, I'm, in, I'm in need, can you help me out? Right, the spouse will say, go to your friends, I got you in this situation. Have them save you. This is what God is getting at. You didn't want me in the good times. Why would I save you in the bad times? You're using me. Talk with your friends. See if they'll come save you. Here we see God clearly, I think, showing and trying to discipline and correct. He teaches people the perversion and their wickedness, their hypocrisy and their sin. And notice now the people of God respond again. Verse 15. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. A little bit different. Seems to invoke a different response on God as well. They also, as recorded in verse 16, said they put away the foreign gods. This is the only time that, that the book of Judges records the people of Israel putting away idols. They're putting them away. And then it describes in verse 16 that that he becomes impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, there's a couple different ways that you could view this or interpret this. One is that because of the misery of Israel, this causes an impatience or intolerance. It causes God to want to act. And this would be a reference to God's mercy, God's grace, God's love for his people, wanting to act and move and do something to alleviate them from this misery that they're in. Another view in the interpretation is to say that, that God is actually impatient because of Israel's unfaithfulness. Because it's their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, that led to their misery. Doesn't, the text doesn't seem that clear, but either way, God does eventually move to save his people. We see this in Judges 11. God moves. There's this guy named Jephthah, this next judge who God's spirit empowers, who delivers Israel. And it seems like that the last two verses of chapter 10 are now going to prepare us as we transition into learning about this guy named Jephthah. This is what the last two verses of chapter 10 do. They prepare the scene. It says, Then the Amorites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together. They encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Okay, so this is now trying to transition us into Judges 11, which we'll look at next week. But that's kind of how verse, the Judges 10 ends. 
It's peculiar. It seems to serve as a transition and a setting up for the next two judges, Jephthah and Samson. Those are the next two major judges that we'll discover. In, in Judges 10, we see that the people are oppressed by a, a people named the Ammonites, who are the oppressors that Jephthah will deliver them from in Judges 11. We also saw in Judges 10 that the people were oppressed by the Philistines, who were the people that Samson frees Israel from in, in Judges 13 through 16. But what I think is most uh, interesting about Judges 10 is that new theme that we see. What stands out in that normal cycle of oppression and the people of Israel crying out and God raising up a deliverer. And this is what I want to focus on this morning, on what God is trying to teach us, what he was trying to teach the original audience, and what he wants to teach us today about confession and repentance. And this is how I want to transition into answering those three questions that we've been seeking to answer every week as we've gone through the book of Judges. As we have gone through the story, we've worked through the text, uh, we, we seek to take a step back from the story and, and see what does this story teach us. That first question that we've been looking at every week in Judges is this. Number one, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? Now, hopefully you've been using these questions in your personal study and they've been helpful for you, encouraging you as you study and, and grow as a student of God's word. But what this question is getting at is what characteristic of God do we see in this story? What aspect of the way God interacts with his people does this story highlight and show us? The one that I want to focus on this morning is that from the story, we see that God is an all-seeing, all-knowing God. The one way to describe this is that the story proclaims that God is an omniscient judge. Okay, omniscient is a fancy word for all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wise. We see that God is not fooled or amused simply by lip service. We see that clearly in the way that God responds to the first confession of the people. God is an omniscient judge. He sees the hearts of his people. He knows the difference between true heartfelt confession and and simply lip service. He knows when God's people are trying to use him and manipulate him for their own benefit, or if they clearly are truly, genuinely returning to God with their whole heart. God knows when his people are simply sorry for the consequences of their sin. They're simply sorry for the effects of their sin versus when God's people are truly sorry for the sin itself. Does that difference make sense? I'm sure most of us have experienced this reality in relationships when someone has wronged us or hurt us and they come back and they say, I'm sorry. And, and you know they don't really mean it. You know, just by the way that they've said it, their demeanor, their posture, maybe the flippancy of what they've said it. Maybe you know this person well enough and, and oftentimes this happens in, in fights that I have my, with my wife. I'm not really sorry over what I said. I just want things to return to normal, right? We, I think we've been there. Anyone been there? I'm not really sorry for maybe a harsh thing that I said or some wrong that I caused my wife. I'm, I'm sorry for the, the discord that it's created. I'm, I'm sorry for the lack of intimacy that it might have created. And if you're discerning or you know people, uh, sometimes we can read right through this, right? We know when a person is just simply giving lip service, they're not 
really sorry. Well, God is never fooled. Even the greatest manipulators of people, the best liars in the world cannot lie to God. God is the all-knowing, omniscient judge. And the scriptures often describe God seeing right through the responses of his people. Scriptures often describe God as knowing the hearts of his people and telling them that he's not fooled by their outward acts. He's not fooled by just the words that they confess. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, for example, God says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are from, far from me. I think that's what we see in the first confession of the people of Israel in Judges 10. God sees through the hypocrisy and he's not pleased with it. Jesus, in fact, quotes this very verse in talking about the religious leaders of his time the Pharisees of his time, who were all concerned about the outward acts and making the outward look clean, yet inside they were rotten. Inside they did not truly love God, they did not worship him, and God's people cannot fool God. This story shows us the true need that we have for genuine repentance, genuine heart change, genuine uh, feeling remorseful over wrong and returning to God. So when we think about how we answer that second question, we transition to thinking about how this story ties into the larger story of the Bible. What this story shows us and how it connects to the, the meta-narrative of the scriptures, we see that in this story is, is a snapshot of what we see all throughout the scriptures. That God's people continually rebel against him, they worship other gods, and this displeases the Lord. What we see in the story is continued idolatry, forgetting God, serving other gods, trying to manipulate and use God, and this is what humanity has done all the way back since from the beginning. Since when sin entered the world and, and humanity messed up as recorded in Genesis 3, and the rest of the Bible shows what happens when humanity takes control without intervention from God. Ever since the fall of humanity, as has been described, all humans are sinners and wrongdoers by nature and by choice. And Judges has shown us again and again the reality of the Israelites' tendency, the proclivity, the disposition of turning away from God, relying upon self, worshiping false gods, turning from the Creator to created things. And I believe that Judges 10 shows us that the greatest oppressors for the people of Israel were not the Moabites. We're not the Ammonites, we're not the Amalekites, we're not the Sidonians. It was the people's own hearts. What Israel needed saving from the most was their forgetful, twisted hearts. The prophet Jeremiah says it like this, what, who can understand the heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. <coughs> Throughout the story of the Old Testament, we see story after story of failure and rebellion and idolatry. We see the people of Israel sometimes confessing their sins and seemingly maybe manipulating God like maybe they do in this moment. We also see them seemingly return to God. But it always seems like it's just a matter of a generation or two. Sometimes within the generation itself that the people forget the Lord and they return back to their rebellious ways. We see this all throughout the book of Judges. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. This is what humanity does. But after the period of the Judges, there's a period that's described as the prophets. 
And in the prophets, there's hope that's sprinkled into their prophecies, their promises. And the prophets hear from God that one day there would be something that's called a new covenant, a new partnership, a new way that God would interact with his people, a new agreement that they would make. And in this new covenant, God would change the very hearts of his people. The seemingly great problem that we've seen throughout Judges and throughout the Old Testament would be resolved because the old, rebellious, twisted, sinful heart that leads to the oppression, that leads to the idolatry, that leads to the people leaving God would be solved. And it's not anything that humanity does. It's God giving his people new hearts. This is the promise, a hope that's sprinkled in that one day, God promises to give his people a new heart. He, gives, he promises the prophet Ezekiel that a heart of stone would be removed and a new heart would be placed in. A heart that would love God and would want to follow his commands. A heart that is full of the very spirit of God that would cause his people to obey him and to follow him. A heart that would be truly repentant, returning to God and wanting God above all things. A heart that would truly hate sin and hate the idolatry that led to oppression and crushing and despair and would return to enjoying God and being reconciled to him. A heart that would never forget the Lord because the very heart was made new by the Lord that is resided in. God would indwell his own people When you flip the pages of your Bible into the New Testament, the first book you come across is a book called Matthew. And Matthew records that when Jesus begins his public ministry, this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew records that Jesus begins his public preaching or public ministry by preaching this, Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The book after Matthew is a book called Mark. And Mark records that this book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first thing that Mark records Jesus saying is this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus calls people to repent. He calls people to truly come back to God and confess your sin to God and return to the one true God. Interesting that this is what Jesus' focus is preaching on, isn't it? Yeah, it seems like for so much of preaching in American churches, it's just add a little things to your life and here you go. And yet the message of the Bible is repent. And Jesus says repent. And Paul says repent. And Peter says repent. Right? Jesus is showing us, and, and like the stories of Judges, the rest of the Bible teach us that we're not good people. We're not good people that we need a little bit of help. We're not neutral. We can sometimes do good. We can sometimes do bad. We're not a little bit broken. We need God to put us back together a little bit. We are broken people desperately in need of a Savior, broken and depraved, evil, wicked. The Bible says all have turned from God. We've become worthless. We need to repent that although God has created all of humanity and on all of his creation to make himself plain to his creation. He's made his eternal nature, his invisible attributes plain through 
his creation, that all humanity has not honored God as God or, or given thanks to him, and they have turned from the worship of God to created things. Therefore, God has given humanity over to their desires. Similar to what we see in Judges, God gives the people over to the things that they want. This is an aspect of his wrath. And all humanity worships and serves created things instead of the creator. All humanity is sinners by nature and by choice, and we have all fallen short of God's standards, God's right and wrongs, God's glory, God's calling. We've all turned aside, and this is why the prophets, this is why John the Baptist, this is why Jesus, this is why Paul, this is why Peter, this is why James say repent. That Jesus not only calls the people to repent, he is the one who inaugurates this promised this long-awaited new covenant. Jesus is the one who brings new hearts, who makes new creation, who will remove the hearts of rebellion and replace them with hearts full of the Spirit. Before Jesus died on the cross, he had a meal with his disciples. And in this meal, he took bread and a cup, and he said this. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Soon after this meal, Jesus was sentenced to death unjustly. Although he was innocent and lived a life without sin, Jesus was sentenced to a criminal's death on a cross. He died unjustly, and on the cross, his blood is poured out. And that blood symbolizes what Jesus referred to in this moment, the blood being poured out for the new covenant. You see, covenants couldn't be sealed or, or confirmed or inaugurated without blood being shed. The Old Testament shows us this. And Jesus' own blood seals, signifies, inaugurates, confirms the new covenant. That this wasn't just something that God promised that we hope to have one day. Jesus secured it and accomplished it in his own blood by dying on the cross. So that if anyone would believe in him and turn to him, they would have the opportunity to have their sins washed clean and have God's spirit invade their hearts and make them new. Amen? This is how Jesus' blood confirms the covenant. After his death and resurrection, the promised Holy Spirit comes. After the Gospels, there's a book called Acts. And in Acts, it describes the explosion of Christianity, the explosion of the church where the Holy Spirit comes and invades the hearts of God's people. The Holy Spirit brings repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit brings boldness and obedience of fishermen who were timid and scared, who turned away from God, who, like these Israelites, rejected God, forsook him, and now by the Spirit, they are bold. They are facing imprisonment and jail. They are being mocked. And yet they're saying, I'm not stop talking about Jesus. You can take everything away from me and I will never stop talking about Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. This is what the Spirit does. This is the joy of the new covenant. The Spirit of God will lead and guide God's people. He will cause them to obey all that he's commanded. The, the Holy Spirit serves as that seal of the future resurrection, the, the final salvation, that the Holy Spirit holds believers secure 
until Jesus comes the second time to right every wrong, to make all things new, to restore creation into what it was intended to be. And until that time, the Holy Spirit holds them secure. Until that time, the Holy Spirit lives in and, and breathes and guides and causes the people to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. That although we are waiting, God's people are waiting for that time in which Jesus will come again and, and there will be a new creation. Creation will be restored and renewed. Our bodies will be made new. Until that time, we still are in this former self, this old body. We fight against the flesh. We fight against our former self and the Spirit helps us put that self to death. The Spirit helps us consider that self dead as it truly is. We seek to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. As Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Paul says that the desires of this flesh are opposed to the Spirit and we are seeking to live by the Spirit. The flesh brings death, but the Spirit brings life. And the Spirit brings fruit. Fruit that is love and joy, and peace, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness. No longer forsaking the Lord. Gentleness and self-control. And God's people live by the Spirit as they daily consider themselves crucified. They daily kill the former self. They daily seek to kill the flesh with its passions and desires and walk by the Spirit in this new covenant. As we look at how the story connects into the larger story of the Bible, we see that, that the new covenant is this answer to this problem in the story. It leads us to ask, what is this story calling us to do? That's how we answered that third question in our handout, the third question we've been asking every passage. What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? What warning or encouragement does this story offer? In other words, what is this story calling us not to do or to do? And if you haven't been able to tell already, I think Judges 10 is a clear encouragement to check our hearts and to repent. Judges 10 presents what you could describe as a heart check, a reality check. Judges 10 shows us that God is after true repentance. Repentance that means not just being sorry over the wrong that was, the, what, what the wrong caused or what it produced or the consequence that it had, but a true repentance of being sorry for the sin itself. A true repentance of hating the wrong, of committing yourself back to the Lord and leaving idols. True repentance says this, I am a sinner. God, do with me as you wish. Do whatever you think is best. I beg for your mercy but do what you think is best. True repentance seeks to put away the idols of our hearts to serve and worship Jesus. My friends, although we might not worship the gods of the Moabites and the gods of the Amalekites and the Ammonites, and the Sidonians and the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Romans, the problem of idolatry is not solved because we no longer worship wooden images on a mantle, even if some of us have those on our mantles. The story asks us to think of the idols of our own hearts. 
Friends, let me remind you that just like the greatest oppressors of Israel were not the Sidonians, were not the Assyrians, were not the Amalekites, what Israel needed saving from the most was their forgetful, twisted hearts. My friends, let me remind us that our greatest enemy is not outside of ourselves. It's not a system or a structure. It's our own hearts. And when we seek to answer these questions and look at the idols of our hearts, we, we ask ourselves these questions. What, what or who do I turn to for life, for meaning, for purpose, for significance, for value, for identity? Those are the gods that we worship. What are the idols of our hearts? We can seek to solve those and, and, and solve the problem of our hearts and seeking transformative sexual experiences or seeking to make our life look good on the outside. We can have a great bank account and a good house and nice kids and leave a nice legacy. We can try to become very strongly religious and have a, a great pedigree and attend the most Bible studies. We can say the longest prayers in our small groups to let everyone know we're, we got it going on. We know God. We pray a long time. We can have the biggest Bibles. But unless we are dealing with what's going on inside, God sees what's going on and he's not fooled. If you're a Christian and you're thinking, well, you know, that's a great call to repentance. Everyone needs to repent, but I'm a Christian already. The call to repentance is not limited to those who are outside the faith. The great theologian and reformer Martin Luther said it like this. The first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory. Friends, if we're honest, we know this. We know that like the people of Israel, we are quick to forget God. We are quick to make other things functional saviors and lords and masters. We can see the fruit of this in what we do. This shows on our social media pages when we're consumed about ourself and self-absorption and self-promotion self-approval, uh, seeking affirmation and validity. This shows in our Netflix and Amazon video history as we are consumed with entertainment to save us from what we think is the ultimate hell of boredom, to bring us comfort to our restless hearts. This shows itself in our YouTube watching for the, as we long for what we think we need the most. This shows itself in what we talk about with most excitement and most regularity. This shows itself in in what we do when no one is looking, in who we are in the secret, private places, what our thoughts run to, what we dream of, what we look at when we think no one's looking at us or no one's watching. And there's not an exhaustive list of idols. I, that could be an eternal sermon. But I want you to reflect on this question. What is the biggest thing that is getting in your way of your enjoyment and your delight in God? I'm not big in New Year's resolutions, but if you make one resolution, I would encourage you to make this. 
Forsake the idols of your hearts that are causing you to worship false gods and robbing you of the joy and the satisfaction of the life that Jesus offers by worshiping him alone. What is the biggest thing that is robbing or distracting you? Numbing you or causing you to forget Jesus? My brothers and sisters, God knows our hearts. And I was thinking about this in the shower this week, that I often spend so much time worried about how I look. I don't spend much time on my hair, but I, I, I like to think it looks good. As little as I have left. I'm just going to hold on as long as I can until people tell me that it's time to go. So if that's the time now, please tell me. But I spend so much time worried about what I look like and how people think of me. I can so quickly forsake and forget the most important thing is getting my heart right with the Lord. My friends, let's wake up in the morning and say, there's nothing that's more important than making sure my heart is right with the Lord. That I'm not going to go through this day forsaking him. I'm not going to go through this day forgetting him. Heart, warm up. Love the one who is most lovely. Be satisfied in the one who is most satisfactory, satisfactional. <laughs> Brings the most satisfaction. We can fool ourselves, I think honestly, we can fool others by coming Sundays, by coming on a midweek group time. Maybe honestly we're just tired of it and we're not going to, Pretend. We're just going to be real. This is who I am. My friends, God sees in our hearts. God knows what's in our hearts. And we cannot fool God with our lip service or trying to make our outside look clean. Let's come to Jesus. Not only sorry about what our sin has caused in our life, but sorry for the sin itself. Let us come to Jesus wanting Jesus alone, not simply the blessings that he gives. A guy by the name of John Piper said it like this, if you picture heaven and all the, the joys and the beauties and the delights of heaven and God is not there, would you still want to go there? When we say, God, give me this, and it's not God. What we're revealing is that this is our God and not God. Let's come to Jesus wanting him alone for who he is. More than his gifts, more than just the blessing that he gives us. Let us want God more than anything else. I was giving a living example of this reality this week with my daughter Addison. Now, Often when my wife and I put my daughter our daughter Addison down for bed at night. She wants something from us. She might ask for a pouch. She might ask for a cheese stick. She might ask for another blanket. She might ask for more water in her water bottle. But this week she was feeling sick. And as I was putting her down, she didn't ask for anything from me. As she was leaving, she just cried out, Dad, I want you. Dad, I need you. 
So that be our hearts with God. God, I just want you. I need you. Jesus, I want you.